Welcome to A Flash of Beauty, the podcast, an audio experience dedicated to the further exploration of Bigfoot and the people Bigfoot has revealed itself to. What started as a documentary of personal narrative encounter stories and expert testimony has now shifted into a deeper inquiry into the forever changed lives of those that have witnessed firsthand this hidden truth. My name is Tobe Johnson, co-producer of Flash of Beauty Bigfoot Revealed. Join me along with the crew and creators of this doc, director Brett Eichenberger, producer Jill Rimmen-Snyder, and cinematographer Michael Ferry, as we go back into the trees to sit down once again with each guest in search of the truth, no matter how strange. All right, with me here is Mike Ferry on with us for a while, but the lead cinematographer, director of photography, is that the accurate position that you fulfill, Mike? Yeah, I'd say so. That that works for me. Yeah, way better than cameraman. Also, <laughs> director Brett Eichenberger and producer Jill Rimmen Snyder. You can't see her, but she's got her Backstreet Boy look cooking. Hello, everybody. Hey there. Hello. Hey. Well, we have a great welcome guest. Welcome to another episode. Yes, welcome to another episode of A Flash of Beauty, the podcast. Today's episode brought to you by, well, we don't have a sponsor yet, but I'll just open the floor. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, if you'd like to sponsor this podcast, feel free to shoot us an email and uh, we'd love to talk to you. Hey, we have a, a great guest today. We have Marcia K. Moore, um, who's featured in the first part of this documentary. Marcia is, um, she's a wealth of knowledge and she also thinks on the fringes as far as science is concerned, as far as art is concerned, spirituality is concerned. And, uh, you know, her journey started with the elongated skulls and ended up in the world of Bigfoot. Um, what do you guys think of our interview? I thought it was tremendous. I thought it was tremendous. And I think, I think the, the average, not that anybody out there is average by any stretch of the imagination, but I think, I think the Bigfoot fan out there that is listening to this podcast would be well advised to listen very carefully because she makes Marcia makes a lot of connections between the Bigfoot world and the elongated skull world and the indigenous world. And, you know, it's just fascinating stuff that not a lot of people are talking about, but it is very, very important. Yeah. Mike, what are your thoughts? Yeah. You know, she just gets, she gets into, um, you know, she brings up technology and the fact that it's taken us away from our own spirituality and, and in a lot of ways, I just feel that, you know, it's, it's, it's really tragic. It's a part of ourselves that we've lost. And mm -hmm. um, with her art and her studies and her research, I think she's, you know, she's doing some great work and trying mm -hmm. to bring us back to that point. Um, and her artwork is just beautiful. I've got a piece <coughs> hanging right behind me. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, you know, I, I her she's just insanely talented. Jill, as far as having another female colleague in the Bigfoot world to, I guess, network with, um, you know, Marcia was one of the first female witnesses that you interviewed for the documentary. Have you guys kept in contact beyond just the interviews that we're doing here? Uh, you know, I have stayed in touch with Marcia uh, via you know, social media. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, there will message back and forth or comment on posts, um, you know, and just to say with, with her interview for this podcast, I, I was pretty quiet. And all that I can say is I get so sucked in to listening to what she has to say. I could have gone on like two or three more hours just listening mm-hmm. uh, about her experiences and her theories and what she's learned and where the journey's taken her. Um, you know, one of the things also that that I really appreciate is uh, her, how, how much she embraces uh, the culture, the cultural differences when she talks about, um, you know, the Pacific Northwest, but also uh, this, the mound builders of, you know, the Ohio and Mississippi Valley, and also uh, looking at Peru and just like all the the connections and whatnot, and not treating this as uh, something of just one locality. No, some interesting people reach out to Marcia privately and have conversations with her about ancient cultures and what the possibilities are as far as recreating them. And Bigfoot may just very well be one of those cultures down the road that we learn existed, maybe in a different style, in a different way. And, um, you know, as I said in this podcast, it's really great to have somebody that kind of upsets the norm. And Marcia does it with grace and humor, and she has no ego. So I said this once before, but I'll say it again. If you want to uh, meet Marcia, you have an opportunity to do it this year. You can come see her at the second annual Sasquatch, Forks Sasquatch Days in Forks, Washington. Um, She will be the first, I think it will be her first Bigfoot talk that she's ever given. Uh, So it's a a first for her. It's a first for us. And uh, we we hope you would. You know, and just... uh... Just so the audience knows, I mean, what the ground that Marcia covers in this podcast interview and what she touches on is just scratching the surface there. She is a wealth of information. And and I wish we had the time just to go really uh, take a deep dive uh, into her experiences. But um, I would I would challenge I would challenge the audience and uh, to to take a a deeper look into the topic, the things she's talking about. All right. And how how it connects to the forest people. Agreed. Absolutely. There's so much there, so much there. I think you'll find it fascinating. Let's get into it. Our interview with Marcia Kamor. With us now is Marcia K. Moore. Marcia K. Moore is a professional artist who has been featured in many nationally syndicated television programs and films. Moore is perhaps best known for her work in the area of three-dimensional facial reconstruction, reconstructing strange anomalies and skulls found in the Americas is a primary research interest for Marcia K. Moore. Using a combination of muscle depth markers, tissue thickness estimates, 3D printed or resin molded skulls, polymer clays, glass eyes, ancestral interpretations, and artistic vision. Marcia has brought to from eerily elongated skulls found in Central America 
to ancient Peking Man skulls discovered in the caves near Beijing, China. There's a lot more than that. We're going to talk about it. Marcia, how are you doing? Good. Thanks, Toe. Absolutely. You know, we only have so much time in these docs to formulate, a, you know, the story behind the cast of characters through here. And there's, there's a wealth of knowledge as it pertains to how you got involved in looking into this mystery called Sasquatch. And it seems maybe to the layman miles and miles away, in fact, in South America, that you got interested in these what you call longheads, these Paracas skull people. So talk to people initially about how you got interested in these fascinating skulls and I guess the migration into connecting the dots with Bigfoot. Okay, well, I've been thinking about this a lot because I'm putting together a presentation for the uh, Forks um, Bigfoot Conference in May. And um, I thought, how does one condense 12 years of visual reconstructions, interpretations, and storytelling? It's going to be difficult. And I, um, even going over my own story, I'm like, wow, this is, um, there's a lot. There's a lot. Um, I got started early on. I'm from the Midwest. I'm from Iowa. And I've always been involved with the arts. Um, I was always outside playing as a kid, and um, that's what you did. I'm in the six. I'm sixties in my sixties, so it's like you stayed out until um, you know the sun went down. So you're out in the woods a lot. So it first started with that connection, honestly, with the forest and what's going on in the forest. That as a kid and that um, lack of conditioning, you felt a real relationship there. And then um, uh, as someone that is in the arts, a lot of my uh, sketches, I've been sketching since I was a kid, a lot of those sketches, the interpretation of my characters always had elongated heads. And I just always felt that that just seemed right. It felt right to draw uh, a head that had an elongation. Um, so you take, me from the Midwest, you take chapters later after I've been conditioned into this, uh, this society, this game that we play, and I'm down in Florida. And I am working on a um, story kind of slash animation that I have wanted, I, I wanted to do. I'm doing it on my own. So I have a studio and um, I'm working on an old uh, story about ancient Florida. So you have pre-Spanish. So it's about 500 to almost 3,000 years ago. And in doing that, I am again creating all of the characters to go with this story. And all of them, again, have elongated heads. And I'm like, what the heck is going on? So through, through social media, I met up with Brian Forrester. And I noticed that he was um, just kind of beginning to really show a lot of photos of what he was discovering down in Peru. Um, and I said, you know what, I have through uh, 3D reconstruction, which was actually just a character that I created myself, I have put a face to one of these elongated heads and I'd like to show you. And as soon as I did that, and as soon as he showed his audience, which was worldwide, it just went off the charts because no one had put a face to these skulls. So um, that's where it started. And that's where I kind of just ended my story that I was working on this animation. And I said, you know what? Um, 
let's take a few side trails. And the side trails were the elongated heads globally and mainly here in North America and then the Paracas of Peru. And then um, also reconstructing the mound builders, uh, the, the giants or the tall ones that roamed all over North America as well. And, and then it goes back, it, it, it's, it, it, my childhood comes forward and then all of a sudden I'm kind of finding myself back into the Bigfoot world again as well and the relationship that all of this has. I don't think it's a coincidence. I think that everything we do, there is, there's reason. Um, I'm a visual storyteller. I can give you a visual outline that just really shows kind of a connection and it's not random with all of these, uh, all of this lost information. So that's what I've been doing over the last 12 years, basically, on my own. This has not been anything that has been, um, you know, most of us, when we have a trail like this, we're doing this on our own. We want to know. So I wanted to know. I mean, Jill, Brett, Mike, you guys can take this question here. Um, when I mentioned Marcia, I think I, I might have brought up her name initially so you guys would look into her. Was it a bit of a stretch trying to imagine how these elongated skulls were connected to Sasquatch? And what was your you know, initial opinion about that. You're on mute there, Brett. Initially, I think that was my, my first reaction was, um, what's the connection? You know, how do we connect? And then, you know, I think it very quickly in my mind started, I started making connections to, to the natives and the indigenous population. And growing up in the Pacific Northwest, knowing about the indigenous population here that would manipulate their skulls, you know, such as the famous flathead Indians that we learned about, you know, as in, in grade school. And thinking about how a indigenous tribe would want to um, emulate Sasquatch or the Bigfoot, you know, and, and I think it was right about that point I started kind of putting these things together that, that Marcia and I had long, very long, incredible phone call. I think maybe it lasted an hour or 90 minutes where she went through these things. Um, and once we started connecting the dots and seeing that there might be some intertwined DNA, I mean, it's a fascinating, fascinating story, especially what's occurring here on the Pacific coast, more specifically on Vancouver Island. Yeah, absolutely. Marcia, do you have anything to say about that? Well, there's a lot to say about it. Um, you know, from Florida, then I took kind of a leap of faith and uh, moved coast to coast. So I moved up here to the Pacific Northwest. And I was at the time, and this was about four years ago, um, involved with uh, researching on Vancouver Island. So I was getting in tune and in touch with a lot of indigenous communities. Um, some of the elders, um, some of those that wanted to tell me uh, the relationship about uh, certain uh, just connections, I guess. Um, I've always been one that has followed uh, indigenous stories, legends, myths, because I believe that through the culture and just even looking at what they've created with their regalia, 
um, what they wear, what they, uh, their ceremonies. I mean, all of that is, uh, there's, there's a trail. And for me, you know, this could be just my story. This could be just me having a theory and um, it could just be my story, but I think it's a strong one. And I think it's strong enough to where I want to tell people about it. Otherwise I wouldn't even be sitting here with you. So um, yeah, there's a huge relationship with the Pacific Northwest coast and elongated heads. And um, it has been said in an anthropology report, and I always forget to write down the name of that old uh, book, and I need to bring that, and I will at my presentation. Um, but within a book of anthropology during the late 1800s, it was in a paragraph spoken about the middens that you find up here in the Pacific Northwest. And they found many, many elongated skulls that were headbinders. Those were emulating what they saw. And then they also found those that were long heads, they described them, and wide heads. And they said the long heads and the wide heads lived independently from those that were headbinders. Now, to me, that's a huge paragraph right there. Lived independently from the ones that were headbinders. So they were there. Somebody was there. Um, and we have to ask ourselves, who was that? Because, you know, a lot of people, you know, up here in the Pacific Northwest or even nationally or even globally, a lot of this information is lost. They don't know this information, but you can still get little bits and pieces from some of the elders. And I would suggest getting out and talking to our elders because they're going, they're not going to be here for long. Um, they've got a lot of information. And um, I think the timing is impeccable for getting that information. And um, if you ask the question, most likely you will get an answer. So just uh, respectfully do that with people. You know, I'm guilty of maybe thinking the audience may be informed about this subject matter and, you know, Bigfoot in general as well. Uh, regarding these heads, let's step back a little bit and talk a bit about the difference between cradle boarding and what the, the real dollar bill is here. Marcia, can you tell some of the differences here and see maybe how this would relate to Sasquatch as you do so? Yeah, and you know, that's that's really a wonderful point, Tobe, because you know, I have been in and around this for 12 years. And so I just take it for granted because the information is just all over the place. And it's not. I'm still posting information, you know, through social media daily with things that I've done 12 years ago. And now people are starting to open the door. They're starting to open their mind to possibilities of lost information, new information. What's this all about? Um, so the heads that we find down in Paracas, Peru, um, you will, through Brian Forrester's research, find out that mainly 4% of the elongated heads are actually um, uh, anomalies. Um, meaning that they are not headbinders. Now, the rest of what we find globally are headbinders, and there's a lot of them, and they're found on every continent on the globe. So we're like, who were they emulating? Why were they doing this? And that has been kind of the question for a very long time. The skulls that are the 4%, the skulls that you see um, are so anomalous. You never know, even through an anthropology report, I've seen anthropology reports that I question. I'm like, I, I don't understand how we're getting a male or female out of this. They are so 
different in the way that they lack in a suture on the head. You normally have on a skull three sutures. There's only two. There are nerve endings in the back of the skull, two little nerve endings that are very visible that a human skull does not have. The jaw lines are extremely robust and you can never tell through the dental records when you're looking at them. And I've spent um, five to six years in dental laboratories as a, one that reconstructed teeth. So um, you never know if they're male or female. Um, and the uh, foramen magnum, which is where the spine and the neck uh, come together, is placed about an inch back from the front of the head so in relationship to a human skull. So then you're thinking, well, they wouldn't even have the same posture. They wouldn't even have the same, there would not be the same kind of stance or walk. They're very different. Who are they? Well, that's always the big question. So you said the walk. I mean, one of the things we know about Sasquatch is the inline gait, the tightrope walk. Um, people that, well, let's just go to Patty. Uh, the footage shows, you know, in my opinion, a real subject. And there certainly is this compliant gait. Um, is there any length that, has anybody done any research about what this part of the neck bone would do as far as locomotion? And does that cross over into the world of Bigfoot? Well, I've done my own research through just knowing a little bit about the anatomy. And I always feel that um, form uh, follows function. So to me, if you have an elongated head that is going back, um, you're not, you don't need a stronger neck to hold it up. You actually need a longer neck to hold it up. So you have kind of an S-curve shaped body. Um, and of course the stance and of course the walk and of course the talk would be much different. Um, there's, you know, I think there's a lot going on here. I'm not gonna just say specifically that all of these elongated heads have a relationship to uh, the Bigfoot world, but I would say that there is a little bit of a crossover and there are definitely hybrids and we're seeing a relationship. I'm seeing that relationship here in the Pacific Northwest and as I take the trail that goes over into Eurasia and Eastern, Eastern Asia, I mean, it's just, um, you see through legend, through story, through the people, you see through the regalia, you see a connection. Now I could be way off base, but it's right in my face. It's so visual. I'm like, I, I there seems to be a relationship. There really does. Um, Have Oh, sorry, sorry, Marcy, I didn't mean to interrupt. I was, I'm just curious, maybe the audience is curious as well. Are skeletons being found with some of these elongated skulls? And what, what are the skeletons? Are the skeletons different? Are the neck bones? Normally, when people find these elongated heads, and oddly, you only find the head. <laughs> so you only find the skull. Um, even down in Peru, I know. Very interesting. Very interesting. And... Um, um, I know down in Peru, this has been something that Brian has kind of battled with over the last decade in that I know there are bundles. There are, you know, uh, kind of the, the death wrap, the bundle that they have. And, but you will more than not just see the heads by themselves and the bundles kind of put away. Um, are they for viewers? I have not seen anything for viewers. I don't think they've taken one apart. I have not seen it. 
I believe Mike, you had a question and we'll go to Jill. Yeah, I had a I had a question. I mean, you were talking about form versus function, and clearly there's you know a function for these forest people. Um, but for you know the the natives and the and the indigenous people that are you know changing their body, I mean, is it is it just an emulation? Are they hoping to gain some sort of power that they don't have naturally? I mean, what's what's the relationship there? Like how is it just a sign of respect? What, like, what are your thoughts? Well, they're definitely, let's, let's jump back over here to the Pacific Northwest where we see this, uh, there's a lot of it going on here. It's very prevalent. Um, so you will notice throughout the coast, up and down the coast and Vancouver Island, that most of the headbinders are women um, and they are expanding. So when you think about you know, you're, you're expanding your skull, you're expanding your consciousness. Um, you're wanting to tap in to something that has got your attention, obviously, something that you're wanting to emulate. Now you will see this, and this is globally, and you'll see it in the Pacific Northwest with those of hierarchy. You know, this is a, a structure, a system that had royalty and has, you know, people of upper class, so to speak. And those are the ones that you typically see um, with the elongated heads to kind of stand out, to be different, to be that, uh, to be that royal figure. But up here in the Pacific Northwest, you will see more than not many, many old anthropological photos of just gatherings of women with elongated heads. And um, having talked to uh, a few people on Vancouver Island, um, mainly those that are up on up by Port Hardy, the Quatsino people, and um, those that are the Kwakiwak people, um, um, most will say they were emulating what they saw. They're they copying. They were just copying what they saw. They were imitators. In fact, the Quatsino are known to be imitators. They live clear to the northwest tippy top of Vancouver Island. So if there were any boats or anybody that came that way, they were the first to see them for sure. Um, so they imitated all the time. And for me, when I follow the culture and the way that the culture uh, appears and what I've been told is that they were really trying to uh, tap in and expand that consciousness. But you know who else held that consciousness and that expansion? were the forest people and they will state that and they will say that they were trying to emulate also i'm not going to say 100 percent because i'm sure there was a little bit of everything going on but you know there could have been hybrids there could have been forest people i mean there were many things going on but there is a percentage that will say that not only do we have the dna of our forest people but we were with the head shape like a sugar loaf is what they call it they were trying to expand that. Uh, they were trying to expand that knowledge, expand that knowing, uh, expand their consciousness to be in relationship with the forest people, because the forest people could do many things as far as shifting in and out of densities, and um, they were wanting to emulate that. They wanted to do the same. They held high, very high regard for the forest people. Yes, Jill. 
Marcia, how far back um, do these myths and legends go uh, in regards, not just to the forest people, but with the elongated heads? I mean, you're talking about the different geographic regions. I mean, is there a, is there an origin story? Is there a, in the beginning, there were these people who, who were, who were doing this or where did, do we know where this all began or is it, is it a regional? That uh, definitely, I have not found any information that would say, this is it, this is where it starts. Um, you know, we have during that time period, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, 10,000 years ago, we have maritime sailors. We have, you know, people were getting around. In fact, when I have talked to uh, some of the, uh, I live up here in Bellingham, Washington, and right next door to me are the, uh, the beautiful Lummi uh, people. And I've been told that they have made canoes that could hold hundreds of people. And they would sail to Hawaii. They would, they would canoe to you know, the other islands. And so they got a ramp. So it was uh, definitely, uh, people were, were picking up things just through, through trade and through um, coming into, you know, they were just seeing them. They were seeing people from all over the world. So that's all I have, Jill. I, don't, I really don't know that specific origin story. I wish we had that. But Marcia, there has been DNA studies done on these uh, these skulls, uh, the ones that Brian Forster um, has found. I'm not asking you to come up and name all the evidence based upon what was done with those DNA skulls, but wasn't some of the information that came back as far as the origin based into the Black Sea? Absolutely, yeah. Um, okay. What Brian has uh, had results from with the elongated skulls from Peru, the Caracas, that DNA goes to the Black Sea and goes over into Eurasia. And there's just a huge story there just waiting to happen. I mean, that's where my trail goes. It really does. And also, well, I don't want to get into this. I could go in all different directions with this, to be honest with you. Um, I know there's also a relationship with our mound builders, uh, the red-headed giants, the redheads, those that were tall people that were of the mound complexes up and down the Ohio and Mississippi valleys of North America and throughout North America. There were, there were uh, sites all over the country. In fact, there's a kind of a rogue uh, map maker by the name of Cecilia Hall, and she has uh, pinpointed uh, the areas of the elongated skulls in North America. She has pinpointed the cemeteries of the giants here in North America and all of the mound complexes and um, all the copper that we see that's there's a connection as well there's a lot that she has mapped out and you can just see the relationship and the, and the hybrid relationship as well you know for a lot of people it might be better to just say we're talking about giants in general maybe you don't know anything about the elongated heads well you can go on youtube and you can find out a lot real quickly but giants in general are kind of a bigger deal and just for sake of the argument you know uh the smithsonian comes up time and time again as far as taking giant remains and housing them somehow like in a raiders of the Lost stark scene in some secret underground bunker um 
I imagine people have whispered in your ears about things, Marcia, along the way. Are there any whispers that come in as far as uh, conspiracies and giants being taken to secret warehouses? Yeah, there's a lot of that. But I can tell you just some facts as well, because I have reconstructed. It might be an interpretation, but I have reconstructed a male and female Adina. Uh, I'm calling them giants because I figure if you're around seven foot, eight foot, you're pretty tall. So it's giant size. I call them tall people because they're tall. Um, sometimes giant gets a little bit blown out of proportion. So, but I have through the Smithsonian, actually, there's old archives of, um, and the, the giants had deformed skulls as well, deformation, skull deformation. So they had elongations as well. So that's why I'm, I'm saying there's a relationship here, but I have re uh, reconstructed an Adena uh, over in the Ohio and Mississippi Valley, one of the complexes, male complexes from there, and also a female, which has received, they've both received actually a lot of attention through, um, just through magazines globally and here in, in North America as well. Um, yeah, there's a lot of stories about the disappearance of these giants because, you know, in the beginning, in the early 1900s, it was in your face. It was there. And you even have the newspaper clippings. And then all of a sudden it's gone and it's not there anymore and you don't find anything. And then all of a sudden, now that we have the internet, then we have these newspaper clippings showing again. So you can find information. Um, there's a lot out there and there's a lot of guys that are studying these mound complexes and these giants. There's not much to be found, but I think just through a photograph or photographs of a skull and reconstructing that person, that's a pretty big deal right there. And also the skeleton remains as well. So it's like, it's something did exist, obviously. And there's plenty of skulls that were in relationship with those mounds as well. You find those skulls as well, even down in Florida. It's, it's, it's fascinating, Marcia. I, I think I recently read an article that, that talked about how a group of giant skeletons were found um, on the Santa Monica beach. I mean, this is back in the 20th century. We're talking about one of the world's most famous beaches. They dug up giant skeletons down there. Um, those of you that are listening can Google it and look for it. But you're exactly right. These articles were everywhere. They were finding giants all over the place. So I kind of want to segue a little bit into, um, hopefully not to get too off topic, but I'm curious to see what your thoughts are if you've had a chance to see Ancient Apocalypse, the Grand Hancock miniseries on Netflix. Um, and, you know, his, some of his theories that push back, um, you know, some of these ancient civilizations to 10,000 years, um, and where some of these elongated skull civilizations fit in, because I felt like he really should have acknowledged giants in some of these populations and he skipped over them. In fact, in the film, you know, we were, Jill and I were watching it, and he was like, well, I don't believe in giants or something like that. And I poked Jill, and I said, I don't know about that. You know, so I was just curious what your thoughts were. Well, I have. I did watch it. Um, I should probably watch it again because it was quite a while ago. Um, and I believe I really love what Graham has done. I think he, you know, just to get all that information out there was pretty phenomenal. He's uh, He's hitting a big audience with that. And that to me right there is like, you know, regardless, 
that's going to open minds and they're going to say, you know what, I'm going to do my own research because what in the heck has gone, been going on um, that I have not understood, you know, that was not taught to me. I think Graham really hit everything in a really wonderful way. I don't think he can touch um, anomalies because, you know, I can. I'm an artist. You know, I, I feel like I have creative license to talk about just about anything, to be honest with you. And this has been some, this has been my own trail. This is my story. Uh, and if anybody wants to, you know, expand this information with their own research, that's fantastic. But for me, this has been my trail because I asked the questions early on, who am I, why am I here, and where am I going? And I think a lot of this has to do with where we're going, where did, where did we come from? So when you go out that or open that door, push the door open, um, that's a deep dive. And uh, there's a lot of different theories about that, I guess. Yeah, and I think what's really interesting to me to bring this back full circle to Bigfoot is the question is, are they all related to all of this? I mean, that's obviously the big question. You know, um, is this a the group that made it through? You know, um, are there still pockets of giants and things out there that we don't know about? I mean, there's there's a few small tribes that have never been contacted you know, um, in modern day, one of which lives on that island. And if you show up, if you show up offshore, you're immediately killed. Um, there's some YouTube videos about that. So we don't even really know what's on that island other than guys with bows and arrows. Um, but Bigfoot, did Bigfoot branch out? Is, is Bigfoot um, a relic hominid? Is, is Bigfoot, were they living in communities with some of these ancient civilizations? Um, of course, here at Flash of Beauty, I speak on behalf of everyone when I say that we think that Bigfoot might have some paranormal abilities, if you will, quote unquote, paranormal abilities. And of course, we address that in our sequel. Um, did some of these earlier civilizations have some of these same um, abilities? You know, you talk about an elongated skull and, you know, you think about the nerve endings that are back there. Is there some sort of an antenna? if you will, it's a, for lack of a better term, something that, that connects to the star people, that connects to the universe, that connects to Earth's magnetic fields. I mean, what have you? I mean, I'm by no means a scientist and I don't know the first thing about anatomy, but we can start kind of thinking about, you know, especially these older civilizations and their, their knowledge of astronomy was incredible as almost as good if not better than it is today in some respects you know with their precisions um so it it just seems to me like there's a lot of clues to our origins our ancient origins and how maybe humans fell off the wagon at some point and got lazy or became complacent you know um Anyways, rant over, you guys. But I just wanted to kind of throw that out there and see what other thoughts were. Can I respond to that a little bit? Um, I think that you've got, you're right on target. And I think as soon as everyone, and everyone has to do this individually, when we start to understand that we're made up of energy, when we start to understand the first Tesla, Nikola Tesla's, 
his relationship with electricity, his relationship with energy. When we start to understand that as humans, we're going to understand the relationship of those energies, those veils, those densities. And we're going to figure out why maybe cultures just disappeared, up and disappeared. Well, for me, when a group of people just up and disappear and you still see remnants of them, like the Anasazi down in the Southwest, if you've ever been around the cliff dwellers, disappeared. Where did they go? Well, did they, you know, and I'm going to throw this out there. Did they walk through the next density? And we're just not in alignment with it. We don't, we're not in vibration with it. You know, we don't, we talk, we use the words, hey, you got good vibes. You know, we use the words like crazy, but we don't understand the relationship. And that's when we have to start using every aspect of who we are as humans. And that is the brain and the heart and the gut. We've got to start, you know, the one thing that I got from reconstructing these elongated heads. And to me, I believe as an artist, you are a conduit. You are a hollow bone. You are letting that energy flow through. You're not thinking. There's no thoughts. You're not perceiving in a certain way. You're letting it flow. And as it flows, you're not only given the interpretation coming home, but you're giving some, some, uh, you're giving some words of wisdom, so to speak. And again, these are my own, this is my own story. But, you know, the elongated heads to me said, humans did not need to expand their heads to find the relationship of consciousness, expansion of consciousness, to find that relationship. As humans, and we're seeing this more than not now within the last couple of years, you were, we were supposed to expand through our heart space. That's where our expansion is. That's where our knowledge is. And that's something that we don't give. Uh, I mean, honestly, I really am giving a lot of credit to it, but I know a lot of people don't. That is our intuition area. That is, follow it. That's your first, that's your first wave. Um, and you know that as an artist yourself, you guys, as filmmakers, you know this. You have an outline of what you do, but usually that unfolds in this miraculous way that you couldn't even afford honestly. And when it forms itself and you go back and edit it and make it work, is that not uh, a gift for you? Absolutely it is. And that's for the world. 100%, Marcia. Absolutely, 100%. And I was just, I was going to reiterate that as you were saying that, that, you know, that's one of the things that we feel like we've, we've been able to do collectively throughout this process of telling the story of the Sasquatch of the Bigfoot is there's been many, many times where we've been led by instinct and led by feelings and led by energy. And that continues to this day. You know, I, I know, and I know Jill can talk about that too, because she's had, um, she's been kind of our leader in that regard. She's, she's definitely um, a conduit, you know, for sure. And she's picked up on it a lot, but, but even Mike and I have been on shoots by ourselves and, and, and we've picked up on it. It's really been interesting to kind of let the story tell itself in a lot of ways. And, and it tells itself through all kinds of different aspects. It's been, it's actually, honestly, it's been fun. You know, um, it's been fun to have been led by this energy and been led by this story. 
Mike? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, you know, Brett was just talking about, you know, intuition. And I feel like, I mean, I've never felt more intuitive after this process of making Flash of Beauty. And I feel like a lot of the times when we're out in the woods, it's like, you're not, you are not thinking about, I mean, you're just reacting to what's around you. And the camera just kind of moves itself to where it needs to be. And you're not in control of it. You know, it's like, I, you know, you'll be out there for, you know, two hours and it feels like you're out there for 10 minutes and it's just, you're not, you're not in control. I mean, you're in control to a certain extent, but you know, on the grand, the grand space that you're, you're, you're being led by something else. And that's something that, you know, in the process of the making of this movie has become, you know, a big part of my whole work, you know, the way I, the way I become a filmmaker, the way I identify as a filmmaker. And just, just to, just to reiterate that what you're saying, Mike, is that it's important for people to remember and understand that when you're out in nature, you're surrounded by life on all levels. You know, when you're in your house, you're not, you might have a dog or a cat or kids, whatever, but when you're out in those woods, those trees pick up those vibes. Those trees send out energy, the plants, the flowers, the insects, the animals. There's, you are surrounded by so much vibrating, energy-giving life. And science is proving this. I mean, doctors are now writing prescriptions for people to go for walks in nature in order to relieve anxiety and depression. And and I feel like, you know, we've been able to kind of sort of really pull from that feel. Like Mike just said, time just goes by in a flash when we're out working in the woods or, or in nature, you know, out doing something like that. We're really picking up those, you know, th that energy. And it's really interesting because all of that nature, especially the trees and the plants and, and shrubs and whatnot, they're all connected to the ground. I mean... I think people sometimes forget what exists underground. And if they could see a root system, it's like telephone lines, you know, and, and um, even just to prove this point, you have forest fires. Not a lot of people realize, but a forest fire will be out on the surface for months at a time, but it will be still be burning underground by connecting through roots. It can still be smoldering underground. So there's this massive system of, energy and life and flow it's really cool when you think of just muted yourself there brett um marcia speak to what the guys have just brought up in regards to just to further their point there these cultures blended you know these ancient cultures blended science and spirituality in a way that we don't do now they're separate things in fact they can't even cross streams um what do you think of that and how do we move forward here because it seems like that's what we need to do i mean going back to the graham hancock conversation here just real briefly um he may think giants are um you know not an important subject to cover he may not think that they're even real but he is a proponent of doing low doses of dmt and studying the beings that these patients are seeing and witnessing in these control rooms, which is something he's kind of doing off the record for a uh, study down the road. So there is, 
this background interest in spirituality and science and archaeology and geology. And I, I get a sense, I'm not saying that you're doing that, Marcia, yourself, but certainly the Native Americans were. I mean, they were having peyote sessions, they were doing sweat lodges, vision quests. They're always combining the spirit, the heart, and science and geology together. Talk to that. Um, well, that's kind of the relationship that if you are really in tune with being a human on the planet, you have, and you're rooted to the planet, just like Brett said, we, when we go into the woods and the forest, we are of this earth. We are in relationship to it. We are rooted to it. So when you live that, um, or have lived that as indigenous peoples, and we're all indigenous, we all come from that. So we all have that memory of that, and we have the knowing of it. So again, what the elongated skulls that I have reconstructed, what they have told me, that they have said, bring back the balance. And for me, that seems so simple because, you know, my mom would always say that, you know, just, well, just, you know, do everything in balance. Well, that is what it is. And so the balance of what you're speaking about, Tobe, with uh, spirit and science or technology you need a balance. You need the foundation of who you are as a human being, as a spirit, as an entity in a relationship with, with technology, with that consciousness, the expansion of energy, the expansion of consciousness. So, and you will find that through uh, even uh, the Hopi, that's a, a part of their uh, prophecies is bringing back the balance, bringing back the balance between spirit and science or technology. And right now we have, uh, we're out of balance. I mean, I think a lot of us are working on ourselves and trying to find that, but, um, and I don't think you have to open up that door. You know, uh, I don't think you have to open up that door through any kind of altered substances. Many people do, many people do. I have, and, and this is what I learned through the elongated skulls as well, and those that were emulating, more women were expanding their heads because more females um, tend, to, tend to be intuitive. You know, they, they have a relationship that's very nurturing, intuitive, and seems very mothering, seems like the earth. Um, that comes a little bit easier than the relationship for the male. Uh, and then a lot of men have to. Uh, use uh, something to alter it in, 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 in order to open that door, so to speak. There is a uh, group of natives down in South America. Oh, I hate when I lose names and, um, and I have lost this name. Um, but the men of the, this indigenous group will say, we are the ones that have to, the men have to alter their states of mine with something. They actually suck on lime all day long. All day long, they're sucking on lime. And I thought, well, why are the women not doing this? And they have said, women do not. It's an op They have that open, that open expansion. Um, and most women here in the Pacific Northwest that had elongated skulls that were tuned and tapped into telepathy were talking to each other globally. And I would talk to uh, elders that have said, a lot of the elders and their ancestors uh, were communicating. We were communicating with our relatives in Hawaii, or we communicating with our relatives in New Zealand. So uh, I think it's a little bit easier for women, um, but still you have to have a balance. 
And um, right now with, you know, we're kind of honing in on balance. So we all have male and female energies and we just have to make them a little bit stronger. That's all. I mean, Real quick, I just want to I want to recommend a film because I'm a film geek, obviously. Um, the, the Hopi word for life out of balance is Koyaanisqatsi. And there was a film that was made in the early 80s called Koyaanisqatsi. And it is basically life on this planet that's out of balance. And it sums it up without any dialogue or anything else. It's a documentary. And it's gorgeous. It's a life-changing film. And it just goes to show how out of balance mankind is. And this is a film that's over 40 years old. And it is still just as poignant today as, as the day it came out in 1982. You know, we're all tech geeks here, pretty much. I'm Marcia, even you. Uh, we, we have our gizmos. Um, we love our phones. But yet, it's the ultimate insult to nature. And time and time again... We are fooled to think that bringing these gizmos and gadgets into nature will somehow bring us in to learning something deeper, as though this hidden school is going to reveal itself. Now, it does. Maybe these are mistakes that it makes. Maybe these are happy accidents or synchronicities. I tend to think they're a little bit of everything. Um, maybe more often synchronicities. But... Um, I guess open up the floor here for this conversation. What <laughs> are we going to keep on reiterating tech in, in nature in order to try to get results? Because I have a feeling that if we took a big step back to the stone age, we might be closer to getting a piggyback ride from these things rather than them running off, you know? Um, I don't know. Talk to somebody. Pick up uh, this conversation here. Marcia, you want on it? Sure. I'll, I'll talk a little bit about this. I think there is, you know, it's here. We have it. So it's it's for us. We just have to create a balance around it. Um, because if you get off balance with it, you, you go in a direction that I think is um, removing yourself as a kind of a physical entity on the planet you're kind of placing yourself more virtual um but you know let's go back to egypt and don't think that those technologies were not there they were there that civilization when i have looked at all of the sculptural pieces that were created um over in egypt and i haven't been there but i've i've seen enough of it and i have used my 3d sculpture software and when i've used that I can feel through the software that the same form is being created that created those sculptures over in Egypt. Because with 3D sculpture, you can, you know, you can do a reflection or a mirror image. So whatever I'm, you know, creating on one side can be easily created on the other side. So it's completely symmetrical, completely. And that is what you see over in Egypt. All of the sculpture is completely symmetrical. There is no way those monumental sculptures could have gotten, I mean, from my, from me as an artist, I'm like, I, I just can't even, I can't visualize that at all. But I can visualize that somebody was using some kind of software and I can visualize that there was laser printing or laser cutting or some kind of machinery that was being used 
And when I asked those Egyptian researchers, the ones that are really hardcore into those studies, they will say, bingo, you're right on target. There, that was there. You can guarantee that there was a relationship there. So now let's fast forward. Here we are with all this technology. They might've known how to use it. We just use it. We don't know really, I don't anyway, I'll speak for myself. I can do phenomenal things with technology, but ask me the bare bones of it. And I'll go, I, I have no idea. I'm just, I'm just using the tool and it's a phenomenal tool. And um, I think that all of the skills and, and tools that we have as creative people utilize them. And if you're out there researching, if it's there and if it's in front of you, utilize it. It doesn't mean that you can't balance that off with going out in the woods and camping by yourself and then just, you know, uh, opening your mind or your heart in a different direction and not using any technology. Try the balance. I think that's what we're supposed to do. Try both ways. Yeah. And just real quick, Marcia, I can tell you that I have been to Egypt and I have stood at the base of the Pyramid of Giza. And I will tell you that the, the two most profound things I've seen in my life, and I've traveled all over the world, uh, were a solar eclipse, a total solar eclipse, and staring up at the Pyramid of Giza. And the hair, when I looked up to the top of that, the hair on the back of my neck stood up, and I instantly knew that this was just not man's creation. There's no way. There's no way. Um, and the, the energy that you feel just walking on that campus or whatever you want to call it, that area, that land, is really beyond comprehension. And I tell everybody to go there at one point, at some point in their life. Mike, go ahead. Yeah, so I'm just curious, like, where are we losing our way? I mean, do we go through these cycles of great technology and having that balance? And then do we let the technology completely take over and then we lose touch with you know the spiritual life and then it, i mean then it just slowly comes back and we've done this over and over or like marcia how do you see that how do you see that cycle working and do you see us you know do you have hope for us coming back into a you know more spiritual and technological balance well uh number one i think this is a phenomenal time to be a human on this planet we're we're living through some phenomenal things just it really if you just open your heart to it we are changing like crazy but i would also say that uh, greed has been probably the biggest downfall for um, humans and um those that have wanted uh you know certain hierarchy over the majority of humans and um I think we're all starting to wake up a little bit with that and we're starting to find ourselves again. And basically that is the jewel right there is to discover who you are again. Remember who you are and all and the power that you have. We are, we're filled with so much power, but yet we look towards other things to find it. Um, we have the answers within ourselves and that's why we go searching. And that's why we go searching for entities out in the forest. And that's why we go searching for uh, who were they emulating. <laughs> and that's why we go searching because we wanna know. We wanna know who we were and who we are and uh, what this was all about. And we're getting closer to getting a lot of really cool answers. And um, I love what all of you have done with this 
uh, production because this has uh, given the relationship of this particular um, subject matter um, a, a new way to view this, to be honest with you, with the Bigfoot world. For me, the Bigfoot world, when it comes to humans, is a very, very heavy, heavy density. It's so heavy that you're like, wow, I don't even know if I want to be in the room. It's just like everybody is just, it, it's their way or the highway. So it's like, if we can get past that and start really understanding each other's experiences and knowing that these experiences, you know, no one's going to make this crap up. This is, you can't make this stuff up. This is, these are experiences that people are having and they're coming from all realms of life. And we need to listen to the stories and we need to um, allow everybody to have their own uh, theory around it as well, because everyone has a different perception. Everyone is going to perceive this differently. And everyone as a, is at a different level with their own uh, densities, with their own energy. We're all different. Otherwise, you know, you know, I'd have a tons of, I'd have a ton of friends, but I don't have a ton of friends because no one's on the same level as me. Like everyone, <laughs> So anyway, um, that's my feeling. I think that we've been a very, and I'm not gonna say I, it's been a very greedy society and it has, and some doors are gonna have to shut and even fall to the ground to make it uh, uh, come back in a really healthy way, so. Marcia, in the, in the few minutes that we have left with you here, you know, I will say that um, you're threatening to this community, and I like that. I like the fact that you're going to be speaking in Forks at the second annual Sasquatch Symposium coming up on Memorial Day weekend. I love the fact that you've committed to do a presentation on something that uh, is going to throw a big curveball to the apers and the woo culture, really. Um, and it's, a, it's just an exciting time to be talking about this stuff because it's really not a new topic at all. It's a very old, ancient topic, and we're just, I guess, crazy enough to bring it up. So um, besides this big event coming up in Forks, you can get your tickets now, by the way, at SasquatchTheLegend.com. Don't miss it. Um, Marcy will also be in the sequel. Is that right, Brett? Yes, that is correct. We have some incredible um stories and features with Marcia and sequel which is something we're working on right now and um yeah I want I'm not even gonna tease it because I think there's just really some excellent stuff but you you won't want to miss it I won't say that much <laughs> Marcia what else do you have going on anything that you want to plug here before we let you go well number one I'm extremely honored to be in uh, both these productions thank you guys so much um I'm so happy that I can you know, I think one has to just be brave enough to tell their story. And I'm glad that I can be authentic to myself and just tell my own story. No one has to believe it. It's for me. But you know what? I think it, when you do tell your story, these thoughts that uh, manifest out there in, you know, all of our energy, all, that, all those thoughts that manifest, that just makes it stronger. And that just builds the audience bigger and bigger and bigger. And I'm really excited to speak um, at the Forks, uh, you know, at the Forks conference, mainly because um, this is so different and we need to hear something really different. Um, and I'm a woman. You don't hear very many women's stories. There are women that get up and talk, but um, I, 
I want to be uh, that woman that does get up and and I'll speak my I'll speak my story. It's just it's a story. It's my journey, and I'm happy to tell it. I am a visual storyteller, so I hope I can get anything across that anybody will understand. <laughs> I hope you've all understood this tonight. <laughs> well, unless anybody else has questions, uh, Marcia, how can people reach out to you? You have an email, you have a website, go ahead and tell people what that is. Website, which will take you to an email. And my website, unfortunately, is very long, but it's Marcia K. Moore, CMR, C-I-A-M-A-R, studio.com. And um, it's full of all kinds of visual presentation on that website. And then also I, through social media, I'm always on Facebook and Instagram. So you guys can find me there. And um, I'm here in Washington, I'm available, I'm around. Fantastic. Marcia K. Moore, thanks again. Thank you guys. Have a great night. Thank, Thank you, Marcia. Marcia. Thank you. This has been a Resonance Productions podcast. If you have questions, comments, or your own encounter story you would like to relay to the show, email us at bigfootrevealedpod at gmail.com. Also, if you're just discovering us, you can watch our documentary, A Flash of Beauty, Bigfoot Revealed, on most major video streaming platforms.